Well, I would invite you to take your Bible with me and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, as we conclude our series, Jesus the Son of David, with today's message entitled, The Newborn King. Luke chapter 1, our text for today will be verses 26 to 38. It'll take us a little bit before we get there. My purpose in this series has been to uh, emphasize a theme that is often underemphasized. In fact, I've been thinking the last couple of weeks that the songs betray that statement because most Christmas songs elevate the fact that Jesus is the King, that He is the Son of David. But often in our minds, in our thinking, in uh, even our preaching, uh, over the course of time, I've 40 years old, grown up in the life of the church, and I don't remember this being a consistent theme over the years. Uh, the, the theme of Jesus as the son of David has, has not been emphasized, and yet it really is the, the driving theme of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, when the Lord promised Adam and Eve the child that would one day crush the head of the serpent, and then moving all the way to the end of Revelation, when the Lord identifies himself as the son of David. We rightly celebrate the the first coming of Christ and the redemption that he accomplished uh, in his life, death, and resurrection. And we certainly look forward to his second coming. But we don't always think with clarity about what happens next. We we long for the glorification uh, that we will experience those who are believers in Christ, where the, the curse of sin will be finally removed from us. We're eager for that day when we will no longer be in a world that's cursed by sin. But then what? What comes after that? We don't often think about that. But we need to think about that because not only does the scripture tell us about that, but knowing what happens at the end or what we would call the end of of this time, of this age, knowing what happens provides encouragement comfort, and strength for our lives today. We know that in our culture here, we have this uh, thing that we call Christmas spirit. And you get into the Christmas spirit by uh, putting up a tree in decorations, by listening to Christmas music, um, decorating your home, maybe watching a movie or two that you've enjoyed over the years. But then throughout the season, there's also traditions that kind of define what the Christmas experience is like year after year. And that can change over time depending on where you're from and your family dynamics. But for many, the Christmas spirit never comes. Or it comes and then it's taken away because of suffering. The curse of sin in the natural world and in the hearts of men can rob us of the joy and peace and celebration that we so desperately long for at this time of the year. But for Christians, celebrating Christmas is not about the happiness that we feel when we're singing folk songs or sitting in front of a decorated tree. We celebrate at Christmas the birth of the one who came to redeem us from sin personally 
and to one day rule over the world in righteousness and justice. And so suffering really becomes a stronger motivation to celebrate Christmas than ease and prosperity do. In fact, grief and loss focus us on why Christ's birth is worth celebrating. Brokenness in our hearts or in our homes amplifies the longing cry for the newborn king to return and establish his rule on the earth. And so our celebration as Christians is not just reveling uh, in traditions, nor is it limiting to celebrating the past birth of a Savior, though that is critical. It's also celebrating a certain hope of the future. And that glorious future is based on the fact that Jesus is the son of David. Now again, we'll get to our text in a moment, but like last week, I need to bring you up to speed to what's happened in the 500 years that's transpired between uh, last week's message in Jeremiah 33 and Luke chapter 1. In this series, we've really spanned a thousand years of history from the time of David, uh, who came to rule in around 1010 BC, and the promise to David that was made by God happened somewhere around the middle of his reign. And then it was in 587 BC that Jeremiah 33 was written, or at least those events took place. That word from the Lord came to him. And that was a reminder that even, five, even though 500 years had passed, and even though the Babylonians were, Babylonians were about to, to overtake Jerusalem, God's promises to David had not failed. In fact, the created order itself was a certain sign that God's promises were still in effect. And so between then and about 4 BC, when Christ was born, a lot happened in the land of Israel. And so I'll just highlight some of the major events. After the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem and deported most of the Jews in 586 BC, Jerusalem and its surroundings were left alone for decades. And this was part of the judgment of God who had condemned the Jews for not following the law and giving a seven-year Sabbath to the land. And so for a number of those Sabbath years, uh, the land was left alone. And then the Israelites began to return to the land in multiple waves, uh, starting with Zerubbabel, who was one of the descendants of David. And he brought Jews back to the land under the support of Cyrus, king of Persia. And they rebuilt the temple and reestablished the sacrificial system. After that, Ezra the scribe came from Babylon and really brought about spiritual renewal among the people who had not been living according to the law. They had uh, intermarried with the surrounding nations, which God had prohibited. And so Ezra brought the people back into conformity to God's law. And then a third wave of Israelites returned to Jerusalem under Nehemiah, and they ended up rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, really establishing Jerusalem as an independent city. And then the next biblically significant event is around 426 BC when Haman uh, deceived King Ahasuerus into signing a decree calling for the annihilation of all the Jews in the Persian Empire. But the Lord had put Esther in place as queen and used her to not only protect the Jews, but to defeat all of those who were opposed to the Jews at that time. After that event, the scripture goes silent for about 400 
years until the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist and of Christ. In those 400 years, it was around 333 BC that Alexander the Great started to work across the world at that time. And for the next 150 years, Israel was under the thumb of the Greeks. But when the Greek leader Antiochus defiled the temple in an effort to Hellenize the Jews to make them more Greek, uh, in about 166 BC, a family of priests called the the Hasmoneans uh, led a revolt and, and overtook those those Greeks, and won independence for Israel. And that led to about 100 years of independent rule, which what could be called a theocracy of priests in the land of Israel. But then in 63 BC, the Roman general Pompey uh, overtook Jerusalem and its surrounding region, inaugurating the oppressive rule of the Romans in Israel. After Julius Caesar overpowered Pompey, He appointed Herod, a man we're familiar with, who was an Idiomean, not fully a Jew, to be governor over Galilee and eventually king over Judea. And he ruled with an iron fist, killing anyone who was a threat to his rule. And even as we learn in scripture, killing a a whole city, a whole town of babies, just to ensure he stamped out potential rivals. In some ways, at that time, Jews were free to live and worship in Israel, but they were oppressed by the Romans, and they were also oppressed by their religious leaders who had so transformed Judaism that they had made it a complex religious system that had lost the comparable simplicity of uh, obedience to God's law. The world at that time was full of brokenness and oppression And there was no evident change in sight. Perhaps worst of all, since around 400 BC, there had been no prophets, no visions, no dreams, no angelic visits, no word from the Lord. It almost seemed as though God had forgotten his people. But then we read this. In Luke chapter 1, follow along as I read verses 26 to 38. Now in the sixth month, that is of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she was 
She who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This passage is so familiar to us that it's hard for us to get into Mary's sandals and really feel what she's feeling. That we read it and we hear it year after year after year. But for Mary, this moment was shocking. Here she is, a girl somewhere between 12 and 15 years old, preparing for marriage, going about her life, doing what girls her age did day after day, minding her own business. Yes, she believed in the Lord and she longed for the coming of the Messiah. She knew the scriptures well. And so she knew that one day one would come to lead Israel. But for various reasons, this was not just unexpected in terms of timing. This was outside the realm of expectation. Again, like all Jews, she longed for the Messiah's arrival especially in light of the Romans' oppression, their taxes, and the corrupt and murderous leaders they they put in power. As a young woman, she was particularly vulnerable in this society, and she was grateful for God's goodness in providing for her a, a young man named Joseph who was to be her husband. No doubt she was beginning to imagine what married life would be like, thinking about motherhood, which would likely follow soon after. In her heart, there was probably that mix of joy and anticipation of her future with, uh, with Joseph. There was also devout living and thinking according to God's word. And for sure, there was concern over the darkness of the days in which she lived. We read here that Mary lived in Nazareth, a city 64 miles north of Jerusalem as the crow flies, which is a, a two to three day trip. That allowed them to participate in the feasts of Israel, which they did faithfully, but it was far enough away to feel uh, distant from the religious center of Israel. It, It was well known that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, which is south of Jerusalem. So no one living in Nazareth in Galilee had any expectations or hopes that they would be part of God's redemptive plan. It's been 400 years since the Lord communicated with his people. 500 years since anyone had experienced a a visit from an angel. In fact, the last two people who were visited by angels were um, Daniel and Zechariah, two significant prophets of the Lord. And even though in Daniel's prophecy, there's enough information that the Jews at that time should have expected the nearness of the Messiah. The religious leaders of that time were so focused on human and man-made tradition that they were not at all concerned about what the Scripture actually said. And so people weren't even looking for the Messiah. There was longing, for sure, but no expectation. I mean, this week I read from the book of Esther where this Jewish woman uh, got into a pageant to see who would be the next queen of Persia. Whether she was surprised to be chosen, the scripture doesn't say, but she knew she was in the running. Mary had no expectation, no anticipation, 
no idea what was going on in heaven. She did not yet know about Elizabeth until the angel told her here later in the passage. This was not a last minute decision on the Lord's part to choose Mary. It's not as though he he looked down on earth and looked at all the young women in Israel and identified Mary as one who was particularly impressive uh, above all the other virgins and therefore chose her. No, the Lord made this decision before time began. He had chosen to bestow his grace on this young woman and to give her a heart for him and to choose her for this privilege. Well, when God sent Gabriel to Mary in Nazareth, it startled her as it would anyone. She was inside her home, a place of safety, a place of comfort, where strangers didn't just walk in unannounced. But the text says that Gabriel came in and started talking. And notice what it says there in verse 28. He says, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. The words favored one doesn't mean that God has found favor in Mary, that there's something inside of her that he has delighted in, but rather it's derived from the word grace. And it means to be a recipient of grace. So again, Mary was not chosen to be the mother of the Messiah because she was sinless. No, as a sinner, she was in need of grace and the undeserved favor of God was upon her. The angel also says there at the end of verse 28, the Lord is with you. Now you could take that as a simple greeting, but I would submit to you that that is far more significant. The declaration of the Lord's presence has long been a way in which God has prepared his people, those whom he has chosen for a unique task. In Exodus chapter 3, as the Lord was commissioning Moses to go back to Egypt to deliver his people, the Lord comforts him by saying, I will be with you. When the Lord came to Gideon during the time of the judges to appoint him as a judge and deliverer of the nation, he greeted him through the angel with the words, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. When the Lord called Jeremiah to his ministry of prophecy, Uh, And sending him to a nation that was hard-hearted and that would reject everything that he would say. He said, do not be afraid of them for I am with you to deliver you. Now as a side note, remember that it's in the context of the great commission that the Lord Jesus Christ says to us. And lo, I am with you always. So we have that same promise as well. Well, when Mary hears these words, the Lord is with you, the the wheels in her mind start spinning as she's trying to understand what what this means. And these words no doubt trigger her memory of Scripture. And so verse 29 says, but she was very perplexed at the statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. What was going on in her mind was no doubt reflected on her face. And it seemed as though Gabriel interpreted her perplexity as fear because it says at the beginning of verse 30 that the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. Well, the scripture doesn't say she was afraid. She was perplexed, if not a little startled by his presence. Again, what's going on here? She's thinking, who is this and why did he say this to me? 
Well, this brings us to the message that God had commissioned Gabriel to give to Mary. This is not a message declaring something new, something totally out of the blue. God is now doing something different than he's ever said before. No, no, no. This is a very old message. A message that was given a thousand years before and repeated over and over again since then. But now it comes to Mary in a very different way than it came before. What was once a promise of a future fulfillment was now a declaration that fulfillment has come. There are six statements that the angel makes here. Let's walk through them. The first relates to Mary and what she will experience and do. Look at verse 31. Gabriel says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. To our ears, it seems redundant to say you will conceive in your womb. I mean, after all, where else are you supposed to conceive? But the reason he puts it that way is because the word conceive is used in multiple contexts. And in fact, it's most often understood as the idea of being arrested, like when Jesus was arrested by the soldiers. And so without qualifying what he meant, there would have been a misunderstanding, even if only for a moment. And so he tells her, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear or give birth to a son. And he says, you are to name him Jesus. Jesus. That's Jesus in the Greek. Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Yeshua, which means God saves, as we read in Matthew chapter 1. In English, we pronounce these names Jesus and Joshua. So even though in English you won't typically find someone named Jesus, you will find many men, even some in this room, who are named Joshua. But it's the same name, just a different pronunciation. The name Jesus or Yeshua were common names in Israel just as they are today. And that's why in Colossians 4.11, Paul refers to a man whose name is Jesus, who goes by the name Justice, just for the sake of clarity within the church. And so our Lord Jesus did not have a unique name special to him. Perhaps it was even on the list of baby names that Mary herself was developing as she anticipated motherhood. Well, to be sure, he bore that name better than anyone in history, but it was not unique. The rest of what the angel says, though, is unique. Look at the second statement in verse 2, excuse me, 32. He will be great. He will be great. This is to say that he will be a significant person in the world. Understatement of the year. He will accomplish great things and he will be known for his mighty deeds. This corresponds to the Lord's promise to David a thousand years earlier where the Lord said to David in 2 Samuel 7, I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. That promise there speaks of David's name and greatness, but by telling Mary that Jesus will be great, the angel connects the dots between David and Jesus and their greatness. Jesus will not be like all the other descendants of David who were anything but great. In fact, often the opposite of great. No, Jesus would be great. In fact, even greater than David. 
Remember, it was David who said in Psalm 110, referring to the Messiah as my Lord. We know that Jesus was indeed great. Titus 2.13 calls him our, our great high priest. Excuse me, our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Hebrews 4.14 says that Jesus is our great high priest. And Hebrews 13.20 names Jesus as the great shepherd of the sheep. Those titles were anticipated in these words by the angel, He shall be great. The third statement there in verse 32 is that He will be called the Son of the Most High. He will be called the Son of the Most High. This fulfills in the fullest way what the Lord promised to David and which was partially fulfilled in David's descendants. The Lord said to David, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And that language conveys that God's relationship to David's descendants will be like a father-son relationship. But here the angel declares that this Relationship will be far more personal. Jesus won't be like a son. He will be called the son of the most high. And this title is not some arbitrary designation. I'm just going to appoint someone to be my son. No, he is called the son of the most high because he is the son of God. Remember when Jesus was 12 and his family, as they did, would go to Jerusalem for Passover On their way home, Mary and Joseph realized, oh, we left Jesus behind in Jerusalem. And so they had to go back. And when they finally found him in the temple, what did he say? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Even the demons knew this about Jesus. In fact, it's interesting that other than the angel Gabriel here, the only other beings who ever referred to Jesus as the son of the most high are the demons who possessed the garrison man. When Jesus came out to that area and the man came up to him, the demons cried out, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? On God's part, in Matthew 3, he publicly called Jesus his Son. Jesus came out of the water at his baptism and a voice from the heavens said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And the same occurred at the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. For his part, Jesus referred to God almost exclusively as his father. He said things like, all things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows the son except the father and who the father is except the son and anyone to whom the son wills to reveal him. Luke 10, 22. Or in Luke 22, verse 42, Jesus said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Of course, that's in the garden before his crucifixion. And then his last words before he died. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so it is that the apostles throughout the New Testament emphasize the fact that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Note the next statement that Gabriel makes to Mary here at the end of verse 32. Angel says, And the Lord... God will give him the throne of his father, David. This fulfills the promise to David where the Lord said, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. 
what was partially fulfilled by Solomon and other descendants will now be completed by Christ. But if you know anything about the life of Jesus, this was not at all fulfilled during that first coming. And while there is a sense that He is reigning now in heaven, He is not sitting on David's throne in heaven because David's throne is not in heaven. Jesus confirms this when He says in Matthew 25, uh, when He speaks of the coming judgment at the end of this age, uh, when, that will take place when He comes. He says, but when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Right before Jesus ascended into heaven after his resurrection, the disciples asked him, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Jesus didn't say, yeah, but it's a spiritual kingdom and I'm going to be ruling from heaven. Nor did he say, my my reign as king begins now from heaven, but one day I'm going to transfer my throne to the earth. No, no, no. What he said was, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. In heaven, Jesus is not sitting on David's throne. He is sitting at the Father's right hand, uh, the right hand of the Father's throne. In fact, all of Scripture testifies that there is only one throne in heaven, and there's only one person who sits on it, and that is God the Father. Hebrews 12.2 says that after his earthly work was done, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus will sit on David's throne when he comes to the earth after the tribulation. He will rule over the earth from Jerusalem for a thousand years and then in the new Jerusalem on the new earth forever. That brings us then to the final statement Gabriel makes to Mary in verse 33. He says, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. The reign of Christ will last forever. This fulfills the promise that the Lord made to David when he said, your house and your kingdom shall endure forever and your throne shall be established forever. Once Jesus is seated on the throne of David, he will never be deposed. He will sit on David's throne over his people Israel and over all the world forever and ever. And even though Satan will muster the nations in rebellion against Christ after a thousand years, they will be devoured by fire from heaven, it says in Revelation 20. And so that last and final rebellion against Christ will be over before it even begins. And those who are opposed to Christ then and now will be cast into the lake of fire. And so there will be no end to the righteous and glorious reign of Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. Now as Mary is listening to the angel, she doesn't know the fullness of all of this, of course. All she is able to understand is that Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of God's promises to David, which the nation of Israel has been hanging on to those promises and those hopes for a thousand years. And she, a virgin, will be his mother. Her thoughts must have been going 
all different directions, but the most relevant and pressing question rose to the surface. Look at verse 34. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? If you read earlier in the chapter of Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah that he and Elizabeth in their old age will bear a son, Zechariah doubted Gabriel, and as a result, he was made mute until John's birth. Here, Mary is not doubting the angel. She's asking, how will this take place? I believe you. I just don't understand the mechanics of this, she says, because I am a virgin, which means, literally is translated, uh, uh, I am not knowing a man. Her question rises from the fact that she's not intimately involved with a man, which is the only method of conception known to man. And so again, she's not doubting. She's just trying to understand how will this promise come true? Well, look at verses 35 to 37 for the answer. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age and she who is called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. Gabriel explains that the promise will not be accomplished by natural means, but by supernatural means. In fact, in the same way that the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters in Genesis 1 and superintended over creation, the Holy Spirit will hover over her and superintend the conception of the child within her. This would be a miraculous conception not explainable through natural processes. There is no traceable biological process and no natural occurring phenomenon that explains the conception of Jesus. If there was such an explanation, Gabriel implies, there w- that would unravel the basis for calling Jesus the Son of God. But because the Holy Spirit acting according to the Father's will is the explanation... Jesus can rightly be called the Son of God. And then even though Mary doesn't ask for any proof, Gabriel informs her about Elizabeth's pregnancy. Conceiving without a man, or conceiving when you're too old to conceive, when your body has a dead womb, as it's sometimes referred to in Scripture, is the same, uh, requires the same miraculous activity. And so Gabriel concludes, nothing will be impossible with God. One of those miracles has already taken place, he says. There's no reason why the other one can't either. Because nothing is impossible with God. Now we we could do a whole sermon just on that phrase, nothing will be impossible with God. A thousand years before this, The angel came to Mary. The Lord made promises to David that seemed impossible. In the history of the world and ever since then, the curse of death has meant that no one person or no one family has been able to rule over a nation for any significant length of time. And sure enough, after 500 years, it seemed as though God's promises were about to fail because David's line was about to lose the throne. But nothing is impossible with God. 500 years later, the oppressive Romans 
uh, are over Israel and ruthlessly suppress any opposition to their power. And Rome's appointed king of Judea, Herod himself, kills anyone at the slightest whiff that they might be a threat to his rule. And so it seems impossible that anyone would be able to rise up and stand against the tyranny of Rome and of Herod. But nothing is impossible with God. And add to the political circumstances the fact that every descendant of David is a sinner. And all of them prove unable to overcome the temptations that, that uh, come to those who are in power. And they all justly succumb to the curse of death. But nothing is impossible with God. So how would the Lord fulfill his promise to David and the nation of Israel? By following a plan determined before time began. A plan that addresses all of the obstacles one could conceive. A plan that involved not one, but two arrivals of the Messiah. In the first coming, he would deal with mankind's greatest enemies, sin and death. And as a result, he would provide a way to rescue those uh, who are hopeless in their condition as being deserving of the wrath of God. And then in his second coming, he will subdue all physical and spiritual forces opposed to him so that he can indeed rule on David's throne with righteousness and justice. God's promises cannot fail. God's promises will not fail. And no matter how impossible it seems that God's word can be true in any given situation, we can be certain that they will indeed come to pass. Mary understands that. She believes in the God of the impossible, and so she has no further questions, at least not at this time, for Gabriel. And so she simply says in verse 38, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. Mary calls herself here a bondslave of the Lord. She doesn't have a choice in God's decrees, not that she would reject it if she did. But she knows that God is sovereign and she accepts the privilege and the responsibility and even the consequences of God's purposes. I mean, knowing how quickly thoughts can run through the mind, she's no doubt gone from joy, to, from a joy of knowing that she will be the Messiah's mother to concern about what will everybody else say because of the fact that she's not married Will they question her faithfulness to Joseph? Well, none of that matters. She humbly accepts God's will for her life. In fact, we won't look at it today, but in verses 46 to 55, we read Mary's response to all of what's taking place after her visit uh, with Elizabeth. And from that response, we can perceive that Mary understood herself to be a sinner in need of a Savior. She positions herself as the Lord's slave and acknowledges his sovereignty over herself and over all people. She affirms the, the faithfulness of God in fulfilling his promises to his people. This tells us that as, as young as Mary was, she knew the Lord and she knew the scripture. She was humble and faithful to the Lord and happy to serve him according to his will. And so about nine months from this moment, she gives birth 
to the newborn king who is the long-awaited son of David. Over the last three weeks, we've seen from 2 Samuel 7 and from Jeremiah 33 and now from this passage that the birth of Jesus Christ didn't come from nowhere. No, Jesus is the long-awaited fulfillment of God's covenant promises with David. Jesus is the Son of David. That's why Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 3 in their genealogies of Jesus trace them all the trace his lineage all the way back to David. In the Gospels, Jesus is called the Son of David 15 times by individuals or by groups of people. At the beginning of Paul's letter to the Romans, he identifies Jesus as God's son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. To Timothy, Paul wrote, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David according to my gospel. In the heavenly throne room in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, the angel identifies Jesus as the root of David. And in Revelation 22, verse 16, Jesus identifies himself as the root and the descendant of David. Friend, if you have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and believed on Him for the forgiveness of your sins, you need to know this truth that Jesus is the Son of David. That Jesus is the Son of David means that He will rule and reign and judge all those who are opposed to Him. This life is the only opportunity you have to believe that Jesus is who He came, that, excuse me, that, that Jesus is the Son of God who came into this world to save sinners by His death and resurrection. By His death, He paid the penalty that sinners deserve, and by His resurrection, He proved that He is indeed Lord of all. So don't let this Christmas pass by with you still rejecting Jesus. Don't leave him in your mind as a baby in a manger. Because that baby grew up. And he lived a perfect life. And he died the death that you and I deserve. And he rose victorious over death. And now he sits in heaven. And he will come back one day. And he will call upon all of us. To determine what did we do with Christ in this life? Did we believe in Him? Did we turn from our sin? Or did we reject? So He calls upon you even now. To turn from your sin. And believe on Him and trust in Him. Trust that He is your only hope for salvation. That means to stop thinking that you can make yourself right with God. By your own goodness. You can't. Only Jesus' righteousness can make one right with God. And His righteousness can be yours. If you would but give your life to Him. Affirm that He is Lord. And that He is worthy of your obedience. And your love. And your worship. Well beloved Hope Bible Church. Whether today for you is a day day of celebration and togetherness. Whether it's a day of grief and sorrow. Whether it's a day of quiet loneliness. You can celebrate the newborn king who will come again one day. And rule in righteousness and justice. Let's pray.
our Lord Jesus Christ, we worship you as the newborn king. The one who came and wasn't just a good teacher, wasn't just a good man, but who is God in the flesh, come to save us who are sinners. Lord, on this Christmas day, would your spirit work in the hearts of those who do not know you in a saving way? Would all that they have ever heard about Christ, all the truth of their sin, all the glory of the the beauty of Christ, his goodness and righteousness, his grace, his love, would you so work that in their souls that you give them life and help them to see him in a way that causes them to trust and believe in him and give themselves over to him and bow the knee that they might experience the joy and the peace of Christmas. Lord, may we all worship you, no matter what our circumstances are today, no matter what our our relational conditions are in our family and uh, in our uh, other relationships. May we look to you who conquered sin and death and who will come again, who will right all wrongs. May we worship you. May we long for your return and may we live in light of your return. May we worship you not only in our hearts, but also in our actions and our words. That we would lift Christ high. That we would represent you well in this world. So that many would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. The newborn king who is not newborn anymore. But who is waiting in heaven to return. Come Lord Jesus. Come. Amen.